Hi, welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. This is the fourth of our podcasts recorded live at Canola Palooza in Lacombe in 2019. In this podcast, you will hear an excellent expert-driven conversation on weed management, including some tips on how to use or where the Harrington Seed Destructor might fit into your operation. We'll start with introductions of our guests and also my co-host, Sean Haney. Then we'll get right into it. Brianne Tyvon, I'm a weed scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe. Ian Epp, agronomist with the Canola Council of Canada. Um, Bob Blackshaw, just recently retired, but uh, I was a weed scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge for over 30 years. And Sean Haney from Real Agriculture and Real Ag Radio. We're going to start off with cleavers as a topic. So Ian, you're going to lead us off by answering the question, how do I, as a farmer, enhance cleavers control? Yeah, so there's a number of ways. Um, it's not a simple answer. A few different things that, uh, with trials, we, there's extra chemistries we can go at, So, and then timing our existing herbicides. So I, the first thing I would start ask a grower if they have a problem with cleavers, or well, how, what's your rotation chemistry-wise, crop-wise, how are you managing it? We talk about cleavers in canola a lot, but how are you managing in the other crop years as well? Uh, generally, if we have a really bad cleavers issue and we have a good crop rotation, we should be able to at least take a good stab at those cleavers in our cereal years. We have a lot of options in our cereal, so there. Um, and then our canola herbicides, there's a wide range of efficacy in canola herbicides, but we can really make sure we're maximizing that. So around all of the herbicides can work well, but make sure we're spraying early is a key thing, especially with Liberty. The glufosinate can work pretty well on cleavers, but make sure we're doing all those things to make glufosinate work well. So good water rates, high temperature days, high humidity, and really early is key. Um, once they get big, cleavers are hard for any chemistry once they get big. And keeping in mind that we have group 2 resistant cleavers fairly widespread throughout the prairies. So especially if a grower that has a pulse in the rotation, a long history of growing a group 2, keeping in mind that that might be why we have a big issue if we're trying to rely on some group 2s to add to it. Um, so yeah, maximizing the herbicides we have. Quinclorac and Clomazone are both registered chemicals that work really well to add to your so if you have issues those seals maybe that's where we do a pre-plant command that's going to help reduce our cleaver population keep them small make our in-crop herbicides work better if we do have some big cleavers escape that might be an opportunity to pull a quinclorac some of these are tools that maybe we're not going to use every year or every field but if we have bad issues we have a lot of options in canola what do you define as a big cleaver (laughs) cleavers Uh, big cleavers cleavers i think you you pluralize it yeah (laughs) They're jerks that way. Um, I would say something that's probably pushing that seven or eight whirl is starting to get really big. Those are ones where we're going to start to really reduce the actual control options we have. Um, if you're walking through and they're stuck to your pants and they're these big things, and you come out and your pants are full of cleavers, that's a bad situation. So big cleavers, yeah, seven or eight whirl is getting to be pretty big. There's limited products that are actually going to do have good control at that point. I think of cleavers as a, as a seed quality, a grading issue. As there like they're not a big weed. No, nope, they're, cl- so they're climbing yeah, weed. They're, it's, it's, so it's not so much, well, maybe it is the crop competition, but it's it's more of a of the, the harvest issue, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of both. They germinate over a wide period, so the early ones are going to be more of a yield issue. Generally, early emerging weeds generally contribute more to yield loss, but the late ones can be more of a quality issue um, because we they're the same size, same shape as canola. 
they're hard to remove out of it, so and the crushers really don't like them. We can't remove them, and they're a really hard seed, so they actually crush, they actually pit some of the crushing rollers when we're crushing canola. So all the way along, they're a, they're a struggle to manage. Well, and you mentioned the same size from a seed cleaning perspective. They're immensely hard to yes. get out of a seed crop. We we know that uh, absolutely. So at a crusher level, it's not an easy sort of pre-clean screen nope. to get rid of them before they go through the through the crushing plant. Yeah, that's the thing with cleavers. They're they're a, they're a problem to manage in canola all the way through, specifically for canola because of the same shape, same size. You mentioned the group two resistance in cleavers and this herbicide resistance. I mean, we've, we've been talking about this for, it seems like a long, maybe since we started using herbicides, I'm not sure. Pretty much. We've, we've been talking about them for as long as I've been talking about agriculture. Uh, so, so, you know, if we take that kind of beyond just the group two and cleavers, uh, what what's what's the message now, or what's the recommendation, Bob? Maybe you can jump in on this one, and then we'll come to Brianne. But with regard to herbicide resistance management, um, it more of an issue than ever, or how would you quantify it? Well, yes, I think herbicide resistance just continues to get a little worse every year. So our our surveys that are they're done usually each province does one about every five years, and and they look at the different species and the different resistance levels and they just continue to climb across the board pretty much. Um, so it is a, a continuing concern and um, I think we're, we're getting better generally as, as a farming community in terms of tank mixing herbicides with different modes of action and so that's good but, but another key component is um, in terms of how we grow our crops, try and grow competitive crops and and then um, you know Ian already mentioned you know managing sometime the weed needs to be managed a year or two before you go into a crop where you don't have good control options. So so if you got a big problem weed, you know uh, maybe you're growing a cereal in 2019, knowing that you're going to come in with a pulse crop or something else, where you don't have good options in 2020 or 2021. So. Um, but yes, it's, it's a problem that continues to grow and, um, and we're going to be living with it for a long time. Yeah, and just uh, building on that, um, in terms of the tank mixing, making sure we have effective modes of action, multiple effective modes of action. Um, there's lots of advertising and marketing that, that promotes multiple modes of action, but if it's not all effective on your weed, that's, that's a bit of a concern. And always looking at adding more tools into your toolbox. So in addition to the herbicides and the cultural controls, what, what else can you do? Looking around and seeing what's out there. I remember doing an article a couple of years ago and on you know just this idea of really how bad is it, how bad can it get? And it was talking about the people who are hand weeding in, uh, in the central United States now because there's no other way to, to manage these herbicide-resistant weeds. Well, one of the weeds they're managing is Palmer amaranth, and that's already up. There's only four or five states now in the U.S. that doesn't have Palmer amaranth, and it's right along the border of Saskatchewan and Manitoba at this point. So that's a scary one. And I think a lot of times we do talk, and you give the Palmer example, a lot of Canadian growers sort of like, oh, whatever, that's a U.S. thing. It's never going to happen here. It seems every time we have that kind of attitude, that's exactly what happens is we do get uh, situations like that. And when you talk to some of those growers and the cost of that hand weeding, it's it's just like I have no other options. I'm, I'm up against it. The only way to rid myself of this problem is by actually going out there by hand and with roguing crews and removing. And just think of the costs that are entailed with that. 
Yeah, yeah it's hard enough to get someone to drive a combine, let alone go up there and weed your crops. Yeah, and I mean, when you say it's a U.S. problem, it's true, but I, I mean, some of the Midwestern states and some of the Western states probably didn't think, you know, it was a Southern problem, and it's come all the way up there already. It, it doesn't seem to be too bothered by uh, climate differences. And looking a little closer to home, we have some weeds here that aren't quite that bad, maybe as far as loss of herbicide groups yet, but we have some that easily could get there and could be, if you look at wild oats, for example, yeah. we have, we've lost quite a few groups in some cases, multiple modes of action. We're only one or two modes away from having a, a somewhat similar Canadian problem and, and grown in Canada problem. Yeah, there's been a wild oat population from Manitoba with uh, resistance to five different modes of action. So you, you talked about making sure you're, when you're using a tank mix that it's an effective tank mix. Um, when you've got wild oats with five different herbicide resistances That's a bit of a stacked, challenge. Yeah, finding a product that will work effectively. And yeah. you were talking about group two resistant cleavers, group two resistant kochia. Now we've got group nine resistant kochia. Yeah. So tank mixing a group two and a group nine on kochia, you, uh, you don't either have... of them might be working. Right. So if you're adding that 14 in which is probably a pretty likely one, you're still relying basically on that 14. And growers don't realize, realize that in your cleavers, maybe you're adding a group two in and you're only getting one of those. That happens a lot more often. That effective mode of action is as important as adding a tank, is just adding an extra group in there. Uh, but any other thoughts on herbicide resistance before we move on to herbicide injury? The results from the Alberta survey are just coming out and we are seeing that continued increase all the way across. Um, over 50% of fields have a resistant wild oat is the estimate right now. Uh, group one and two resistance has skyrocketed in wild oats. It's just everything that we've expected to see that we've been kind of saying will happen is indeed happening and it's not good. I think there's been a, an increase in group two resistance because people knew they had resistance to group one and so uh, as they should have, they switched to group two. So nothing wrong with that. But now that we have a number of years of group two uh, use under our under our belt kind of thing then obviously the group two resistance and that's that's showing up in the recent surveys that's probably the big increase here is group two resistant wild oat We've, we talked about adding tank mix partners and growers have come a long way we think of a lot about that rotating groups multiple groups whatever we're doing but and i think that's made an impact but clearly as the data would show that's not enough we need to keep doing more things we need more integrated management just because the, the herbicide resistant weeds keep growing clearly it, we're, it's reducing it maybe but the trend is pretty clear all right, herbicide injury, carryover. Now, we had a fairly dry spring in at least a lot of the prairies and still dry in some areas, although the rains finally seem to have arrived for most people. Um, but, Bob, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. Was the potential canola loss because of herbicide residue carryover higher than expected or what like were people just thinking oh it's dry conditions my seed isn't isn't emerging but maybe there was some un, undiagnosed carryover that was going on behind the scenes do you think that may have been happening well i think definitely and uh i think uh as humans we tend to have very short memories and uh i re remember all the the herbicide questions and concerns that were prevalent 15 years ago or 20 years ago with especially the group two herbicides. And, um, and then at least on the Southern Canadian prairies and generally as a whole, we went through a wet cycle from 24, uh, 2004 to, to 2016 or so, we were above normal rainfall in many areas of the prairies. And, um, and, and those carryover problems, they just disappeared. And, um, and we, as a farming community, we, you know, we tend to forget about them. And, and now we've had one year, two years, three years of dry conditions, depending where you're located, 
and all of a sudden uh, these issues are cropping up again now. So I think I think that's a big big factor, and it's it's often not just one year; it's often like a two-year dry conditions where you start seeing things uh, carrying over, and then something maybe was applied in 2017 and you think okay well this is 2019 is it possible i've got injury for that well yes it is if you've had dry conditions so so bob it's about the fall moisture to to is it or is the spring more important it's 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 the moisture during june july and august that are is the most thing because you have to have warmer soil temperatures for uh, for the microbial breakdown to happen, or even if it's a chemical hydrolysis, so so the problem with if you having good moisture in uh, in September, we're just getting into cool conditions in September and October, and so there will be some breakdown, but not enough. And a super broad brush question, I realize that, but how much moisture do you actually need to put a dent in it? The, what, what happens in a carryover situation, um, all, most herbicides bind to soil particles if it's, if it's dry. So they become tightly absorbed to organic matter and clay particles mainly. And if they're tightly absorbed, then they're not available for the microbes to uh, use them as a food source or for chemical hydrolysis. So they have to be desorbed from the soil particles into the soil solution to become available for breakdown, whatever breakdown method that is. And so that, that's not um, a straightforward answer. It depends on what the herbicide group is and its binding characteristics. And for some products, the pH of the soil makes a big difference on how tightly bound it is. So like the sulfonylureas, for instance, I mean, they're tightly bound to soil in high pH and degrade very slowly, where in a low pH, they don't bind as much, and then they're, they're available. So they would become available like in a, a lower rainfall situation and might still be available for breakdown. But in lots of these cases, you need, you know, if you've got, uh, it's sort of cumulative, but you, you know, you need, you know, three quarters of an inch or an inch or an inch and a half to make sure that you've got adequate moisture for these processes to be happening. Bob, you talked about the conditions that cause um, herbicide carryover to be higher so obviously moisture that we've talked about that one the ph angle is interesting and and i think the, the if i recall and maybe and you can and brianne don't forget to jump in here too but that some of the group twos uh, break down in high ph some of them are low low ph so there's no one standard ph um so you could comment on that and then then go into the next part of the question is is there anything else that can be a factor in herbicide carryover well, within the group twos, we have um, multiple chemical families um, within the group two. So they have different chemical characteristics, but they're grouped within a group two because their killing action is still the same. They're still inhibiting the same enzymes within the plant, but, but they have different characteristics. So um, the, the sulfonylureas are break down in a, in a lower pH soil much faster. Uh, than a high pH soil and the IMI uh, herbicides of the group twos are just the opposite. So, um, so in a high pH soil, they'll, they'll break down much faster than a low pH soil. And it, and it really is driven by sort of their, their charge on the particles at a certain pH that, that binds to the soil particles. So it's, it's electronic uh, attraction. So a positive negative uh, attraction of the, uh, of the particles to the soil. And so, um, so that's why, you know, Eric Johnson um, in, in Scott, Saskatchewan did some really fantastic work on the Emmys uh, 15, 20 years ago 
because they were in a pocket of uh, of that that low pH and they had the most severe problem. So it's a pretty good answer for it. Yeah, I think you covered I, it. <laughs> I, the only thing I mentioned, is, so going back to our tank mixing conversation before, is maybe growers don't realize they remember. Oh, I sprayed my group two and my peas. Okay, that's a pretty straightforward example. But some of those extra group twos were tank mixing in in our pre-burn or we're, tank, we're adding in in a post-harvest, which is great for herbicide resistance management. Last time we went through a really dry cycle, we weren't doing as much of that. So keeping good record keeping on all the various group twos, are we going to start stacking group twos, especially if we get a prolonged dry experience with multiple years? Are we going to be stacking that throughout the year? Or did I actually apply two group twos in a given year, but I forgot because it was mostly glyphosate did my, my pre-burn or something like that. There's a lot more factors for growers to be just on top of and considering when they're making their pl- crop plans for the next year. All right, one last thing on herbicide injury. If you're if you're out scouting and uh, you're wondering what's going on with a, with a canola plant, are there real telltale signs that it, it quite likely is a herbicide injury? Are there symptoms that are clearly herbicide injury or... It depends on the group. So a good record keeping is helpful. If you can rule out that there's been no group two applied and you don't think it's a tank clean out issue with group two or something, well then some of these, you know, it, good record keeping in, if a farmer phones me up and says, I think I see herbicides, I'm seeing this. You need a lot of context. It's not always easy. We think, we quite often show examples of a very clear group two. We got this beautiful purpling, this nice growing point dying off, or like, you know, these great examples in the field with different doses, because we don't know what kind of breakdown. It's not always straightforward you know, easy to say it's this herbicide or it's that herbicide. There's patterns in the field, there's variation. And quite often in dry conditions, stand establishment in canola is tough for a whole host of reasons. Herbicides is definitely one of them. Yeah, the, those patterns are can be a big thing. Um, it's not going to be a straightforward picture where, oh, I have I have carryover over the entire field because you get those pockets of variability in the soil and, and things like that. Um, I know even in our pots, we've had some issues this year with group four carryover on peas where we've spot sprayed thistles. So understanding the groups that you've sprayed, understanding what that symptomology is, is really important, but also keeping an open mind to what else could be happening in this field in terms of disease or insects or soil nutrition or anything like that, soil fertility. So So I think it's important to look below the ground as well. And I think sometimes we go and look at the foliar part of the plant and we look for symptoms and and they're often telltale, but I think you should always have a, a spade or, you know, with you and dig up some plants and 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 then you may see an insect problem or you may see some disease problem or 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 even some herbicide injury symptoms are um, expressed in the root part of the plant as well so that's another suggestion i would make is dig up plants can you uh, i mean ian you're saying how everything there's so many different possible symptoms but is there a, a clear root symptom that a person would be looking for as an indicator of possible herbicide carryover well, with phenoxy herbicides, you I think most people, I guess it's an easy one because it would be used it for so long, you get that leaf cupping and twisting and all that stuff. But you can get swollen um, roots as well, or just sort of the, the coleoptile portion, just sort of at the, at the above ground, below ground interface, it can become quite swollen. Okay. So if you were looking at Treflan or, a, or an Ethylfluralin, for instance, and you would have uh, short, stubby uh, roots with... Uh, with very um, very little um, small hair development, the hairs don't develop, and you get these short stubby roots. So, um, so that's a couple of examples. But uh, but sometimes it's it's also the herbicide that you might be looking for. But again, to rule out that it's not an insect or rule out it's not something else. Yeah. So on the opposite side of that, you can have something that looks very much like herbicide herbicide symptomology foliar, but you dig it up and you've got a root disease. 
or you've got something else happening that's causing that symptomology. So that's that's where it's really important to look at both sides. Purpling is my favorite and least favorite thing in canola. Because purpling, <laughs> you think of group 2 injury, you think purpling. Everyone thinks of purpling. Yeah. But it could be sulfur deficiency. It could be a cold weather thing. Purpling just means a bit of stress in the canola. It definitely can be a group 2. But purpling by itself can be five or six fairly serious things that we commonly see in spring. All right, let's talk about the Harrington seed destructor. So what exactly is that thing? So the Harrington seed destructor, the version that we're working with, is a tow-behind cage mill, basically. Uh, So it hooks onto the combine, it funnels the chaff from the combine into a mill, where it pulverizes it and spits it out the back. And the idea is that the weed seeds that are left in the field at harvest are mostly coming through in the chaff. Those weed seeds will be damaged. They're not left to go into the seed bank. They're not going to grow the next year. And... So the, is it two big heavy rollers rolling against each other? It's it's a cage mill. So cage mills were previously used for things like um, crushing gravel or crushing coal. Um, and it's basically, it's two spinning plates that spin in opposite directions and there's bars across it. The seeds go into the middle of it and they have to get out and they just get bounced around and smacked around enough times that they break into small are little pieces. Are there any weed seeds that are are indestructible by a seed destructor? <laughs> Not that we've tested so far, um, but the, the bigger problem is being able to get the seeds into the seed destructor. So you have to be able to get it into the combine and into the machine. Things like wild oats that drop their seeds early can be hard to get in there. Things like um, thistles that have sort of the little parachute pappas on top, those kind of float away and don't necessarily go in as well. Um, there was a tumbleweed in Australia where we had it keep rolling off the header of the combine and wouldn't actually go into the machine. So that that's, tends to be the bigger problem is getting it in. Any idea on the success rate, like what the slippage is still of the weed seeds that are able to get through? Uh, so for what's coming through, for what's actually going into the machine, we've been seeing typically upwards of 95% control on all of the weeds that have been tested in Australia, in the US, in Canada, in the UK at this point in time. Um, in terms of field success in Australia where they're dealing with ryegrass, they, they expect to see about a 60% control over time. Um, you do get have those weed seed banks that kind of skew your numbers. You're not going to see that immediate result. But over time, they start to see that as about a 60% control driving those numbers down. And the purpose of spreading them back onto the fields instead you, of collecting them and hauling them out? You, you want to get the nutrients. So you, you don't want to remove your chaff and your straw because you get the nutrition and the, the fertility from that breakdown. And so you, you want to see that left on the field if possible. They're not cheap. No. Did they Are they self-contained in terms of horsepower, or are they feeding off the combine? So the original unit had uh, its own engine and everything, but you were still towing it behind. Um, the unit that we've got in Lacombe is not what producers are using anymore. You can't even purchase them. Now they're built into the backs of the combines. Um, originally, the first units were hydraulically driven. Now the seed destructor, as well as the seed terminator and the Redicop seed control unit are all mechanically driven. So it is um, still tying into the combine. It uses some horsepower. I don't know exactly how much because no one wants their numbers to be compared to the competitors anymore. So at one point, the hydraulically driven was about 80 horsepower. It's less than that, but I'm not sure exactly how much less because no one really wants to give a number anymore. When you think of all of the options now for management of inter- like integrated weed management, uh, we've got the row spacing, we've got timing, we've got crop tank mixing, we've got crop rotation, all of those. I mean, the list is long. 
Does the seed destructor fit nicely into that list? It really does. Um, when you look at integrated weed management, you want to hit the weed as many times throughout its life cycle as you can. Um, and so looking at these weed seed bank inputs, that's it's another hit at the life cycle, and you're managing the weeds that have survived through all the rest of that integrated weed management. Um, in a lot of cases, just when we do talk about herbicides, your herbicide resistant ones are going to be the ones that are in the field at harvest time. So preventing those seed bank inputs is, is a huge thing for managing that population. So it's, it's, it's an additional tool to try and, try and fight back. And I guess if, I mean, if it's one of those tools that helps us get away from the hand weeding to come cycle back to that one, then maybe that is money well spent. Yeah, and it's, um, there's a lot of talk about the, the capital cost associated, but you have to look at, when you spray a herbicide, it's this many dollars per acre. If you spread the capital cost of a, a mill or any of these other harvest weed seed control methods out over all your acres, over how many years you're going to use it, that, that number starts breaking down quite quickly. And then if you compare that to what you might be losing from herbicide-resistant weeds or how many herbicides you might have to spray to control a weed, th there's a lot of trade-offs when you do those economic calculations. Any last thoughts on the seed destructor? I was just curious, which, which are the weeds you're most excited about? So we talk about, there's a whole host of weeds in Western Canada, but what are the driver weeds you think this has the perfect or a really good fit? We talked about wild oats not being one of those. Uh, volunteer canola is one that I'm really excited about, and it's actually been of interest for a lot of seed growers to manage the volunteers coming out the backs of their combines. Cleavers is another good one that we've, we've seen it be a potentially very good target for. Um, we, we need to do some more work on kochia. It, it's got <sighs> that was some the one good I was potential. hoping you were going to say. It's got some good potential. It works well in terms of being able to get it in and control the seed. But within six inches from where your harvest height, there can still be thousands of seeds on that plant. So in terms of how much of an effect it'll have on a population, we, we need to do some more work there still. All right, we're going to go to each of you for a last word on the message that you want to get across with regard to weed management here at Canola Palooza. Who wants to start? I'll, I'll take a crack. I'll let them think about it for smarter answers. Uh, <laughs> weed management is something that we think about, in, especially in canola, we think of it as easy. I know what I, when I plant my canola seed, I know what exact herbicide I'm doing. I know what I'm doing year to year. But the key thing now is weeds are evolving. We need to change our weed management strategies year to year. So what you did last year might have worked good last year. Think about this year what didn't go so well or what I want to change. Continuously changing what we're doing in weed control is the way to kind of try to keep pace with some of these changes in weeds. I, that reminds me of a quote I just... Now, Tammy Jones, who's the weed management specialist for Manitoba Agriculture, she was quoting someone else, so who knows where this quote came from. But it was, if it works, change it. Which Steve is, Powell's. That's a Steve Powell's quote. Who's <laughs> yep. he? Uh, he was the former director of the Australian Herbicide Resistance Initiative. If what you're doing works, it's time to change. Something along those lines. Yeah. It went, once you've broken it, it's far too late. So, yeah. Keeping in mind, as th now is the perfect time. We probably were past most herbicide applications in Western Canada, or we're, th we're through a lot of it. A lot of those decisions are made. Look at what went well, what didn't go well, and what are we going to change for next year. Now is the perfect time. It's fresh in your mind. Write it down, that good record keeping on what was sprayed, what you want to change for next year before we get to spring and we start all over again. Brianne, last word? Think outside the box. Um, a lot of these harvest weed seed control methods that I'm working with, they're all producer ideas that have come out of Australia. And so if you're having an issue... You know, how, how can you target it and, and be willing to try new things? Because what we're doing is, is not always going to work. So think outside the box and try something new. I think the real key is a, a multi-year approach. I mean, there is no silver bullet and we're not going to solve things. So we, we sometimes talk about, okay, what we applied this year and what we'll, we're going to apply next year. But I think the more progressive guys are planning their ro rotations right now for 2023 and 2024. And they're also thinking about, okay, what herbicides am I going to use in those crops 
two, three, four years, maybe even five years down the road. Um, and I think that's, that's really important. If you can get there and a more diversified crop rotation obviously is better not just for weeds but also insects and diseases. So, so it's really hard to get there, especially when the prices of our crops fluctuate so much from one year to another and everything like that. But if you can get to the point of thinking in blocks of four or five years, um, that's really a, a key decision if you can go there. What percent of growers do you think are looking at rotations in like four and five years out? Uh, I think it depends who you talk to. And I think um, the problem with talking to someone like me is maybe I talk to some of the more progressive growers and I may not have the clearest picture, but many growers I talk to have a four-year rotation and 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 they're, they're, it's it's sort of religion for them. So um, they, they say, no, I'm not going to switch out of our rotation because that crop value is higher this year or something else is happening. Um, you know, I got something that works pretty well for me and I know, I know there's a long-term goodness to doing that. So if you can sort of lock yourself into uh, a four or five year planning method and try and not uh, it's hard it's very hard it's hard yeah no you have to make money you have to pay the bills well, and and things change from year to year well I think when you look at western Canada one of our agronomic advantages is that we can grow so many different crops right when you compare that situation to what the mentality or the attitude is right now in the midwest where it's like corn soybeans are nothing you really limit yourself agronomically from a soil health perspective, a lot of different things there. And when things go wrong, you really don't have any other options on other things to grow. Yeah. And we're pretty lucky that the crop, a lot of the crops we grow are naturally fairly competitive if you look at widespread crops, like narrow rose base, and they do well. So we can really utilize that agronomy to make them a lot more competitive, whereas things like corn and soybeans, they're not the most competitive. And we do have some of those crops, but you have the option of really rotating some hot, really competitive crops. Great. So p- part of it's a money thing. I just, you know, the U.S. Midwest, they can grow other crops besides corn and soybean. They can, grow, they can grow tons of crops, but those are the high economic return crops. But there's some good studies that are being done showing that if you grow, you know, winter wheat, you know, one in three years or one in four years, or you grow something else, you, you will take a bit of an economic hit in that one given year. But if you factor that out over five years or eight years... Um, you actually come out ahead of the game in terms of long-term economics. So, so that's the other thing to, which again is very difficult to do, but you have to think in terms of your farm economics over, over multiple years. Great. Thanks, you three. Thank you to Brianne, Bob, and Ian for that excellent conversation. For more on Harrington Seed Destructor and other similar tools, we have a good article at Canola Digest. .ca called Manage Weeds with the Combine. For more on weed management in general, you can go to canolawatch.org and click the Weeds tab at the top. In closing, I also have to thank Sean Haney and realagriculture.com for co-hosting and recording. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay Wetter.